So the 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 first category of the that is talked about in the um, fourth foundation of mindfulness is working with hindrances, and so the hindrances are of of desire, of ill will, a sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt. And again, in the looking at the five hindrances, one is clearly aware of when each of the hindrances is present and when each of the hindrances is absent. So this is interesting because one is noticing when they're absent as much as when they're present. So we tend to focus on when things are wrong, and this is actually noticing when there isn't anything wrong. Then it goes through the aggregates. So the aggregates are um, how does one abide contemplating the mind objects as mind objects in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging? Here one understands such is material form, such is its origin, such its disappearance, such is feeling, such is its origin, and such is its disappearance. Such is perception, such is its origin, such is its disappearance. Such are the formation, such are their origin, such are their disappearance. And such is consciousness, such is its origin and disappearance. So again, one is seeing the aggregates, each of these aspects of one's own body, heart, and mind as they're arising, seeing what causes them to arise in perception and what allows them to dissipate. Then it goes through the six sense spaces, and then the next one, the fourth element of the categories that they have here is the seven enlightenment factors. So in the seven enlightenment factors, these are the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, investigation of states, energy, Rapture, tranquility, concentration. So again, there is this whole refrain about uh, one is able to see how the mindfulness enlightened factor in me and one also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to be fulfillment by development. So it looks at it both in terms of what's present, what's absent, and how to make it come into fruition if it's not there. So again, the seven factors of enlightenment is a way of just tuning in and saying, is mindfulness present? If it's absent, what do I need to do or how can I bring my attention so that it actually comes into fruition? If it's present, can I develop it further? And then it goes through all the others of, of, the, of the enlightenment factors as well. So energy enlightenment factor, is there sufficient energy present? If it isn't sufficiently present, what can I do to, to bring my attention or to cultivate it so that it, is, it comes into fruition? Then there's rapture. Now, one of the reasons why it's interesting to notice that rapture is an enlightenment factor, particularly in the beginning of a retreat when we've got the long-drawn look, you know, the meditator long-drawn look, is, is that some people kind of have this, this weird notion that if they're not suffering, they're not practicing properly. And that can be a really deeply seated wrong view. 
And it's really helpful to remember that one of the enlightenment factors, one of the qualities of mind which is essential for enlightenment is rapture. It means that not only is it not bad, it's actually really good. (laughs) It's not illegal. And so, you know, some of us need to learn how to tolerate it, you know, how to let a rapture come into the body and let it, like, you know, like with the breath, you know, allow that internal massage, allowing feelings of joy and rapture to come through and sustain and be sustained and, and like, massage through the whole system so that we, we can tolerate it, we can expand it, we can allow it to grow to fruition. Now, rapture has a slight edge to it. It's got a little bit of agitation to it. And so when the rapture is really strong, you know, the bliss is just, it's incredible, you know, the kind of ripples of of ecstasy that can happen just from sitting here meditating. And And yet what's needed is to understand how to balance that with tranquility, with an evenness of mind, so that the agitation one is not getting absorbed or um, intoxicated by the tranquility, I mean by the by the rapture. And then the tranquility and the concentration then support each other, so the concentration has the ability to look at something very carefully. And again, all of these factors of enlightenment are very supportive in our own practice and are bringing in the maturation of our practice. And so one can examine. And so, you know, in the same way that we can be attending to the breath, well, we can be attending to the hindrances or we can be attending to the seven factors of enlightenment. Are they present? Are they absent? If the hindrances are absent, can we notice that they're absent? If the seven factors of enlightenment are present, do we notice that they're present? Are there ways that we can attend to them so that they develop and and sustain more fruition from them? So, again, this is looking at our experience in terms of categories of Dhamma. And then the last one, and, and perhaps the most um, significant one, is, is looking at our experience in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So there's a whole way of practicing with the Four Noble Truths so that it's a, like immediate practice in itself. You know, the Four Noble Truths is not just a kind of Buddhism for babies. It's, a, it's, a, it's an entire reflective teaching that allows us to look at where is the suffering and so at any point, there's any kind of stress or tension or agitation or irritation, tightness, shutting down. There's the training the mind to look at that and say, where is the suffering? And notice that's uncomfortable. Notice that there's uncomfort or discomfort in, in, in having agitated states of mind like anger or sorrow or grief. Noticing the, the longing when you're not with the people you want to be with. Or you're with the people you don't want to be with. You know, or the food's not nourishing enough, or there isn't enough of it. You know, whatever it is, where the system starts to, to vibrate, you know, in some kind of a way, you know, the mind has the ability to then turn and focus and say, well, this is suffering. You know, this is agitation. And because we operate a lot on a kind of autopilot, we don't catch it. You know, we don't see, we don't see these things. But the point of the suffering, again, is not so that we think, well, we're good Buddhists because we're really good at noticing suffering. 
but so that we can look at where the cause of the suffering is. So the second noble truth is, is, is that there is a cause of suffering, and the cause of suffering is wanting or not wanting it to be the way that it is. So in the bringing attention to the suffering and seeing the cause of suffering, then right there, right exactly there is the cessation of suffering. So the whole point of the Four Noble Truths is not to get stuck on the suffering, not to get stuck on the first truth, but to use it as a, as a support for realizing the end of suffering. That's the point of the Four Noble Truths. And that contemplation can be brought into the present moment with every single thing that we're doing. And so, like, you know, we become a little bit like sniffer dogs. We're just... But then the whole system then learns how to go to the suffering and see it, feel it out. And then there's the finesse of learning to stay with the cause of suffering until it opens into the cessation of suffering. And that's not a kind of focused, fixed thing. That's an open, spacious thing of learning how to allow the suffering to end and feel the ending of suffering right there. And that's really lovely. Because it's right here, it's right here, it's right here, it's right here. It's not separate from right here. And no matter how miserable it is, no matter how much you haven't slept, no matter how much it hurts, and no matter how achy it all feels, it's right here, in this moment. It's not separate from this moment. And then the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the path that leads to the end of suffering, and that has to do with right view and right thought and right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right mindfulness and right concentration. And again, what these do is anchor in a path that supports cultivating the right ways of bringing skillful things to one's own uh, in situation that helps support this. So, you know, in the Theravadan tradition, it's really clear that, you know, precepts are really helpful. You know, being sober is really, really helpful because when we've got too much substances in our system, our capacity for discernment just goes down the toilet. And so it's not a comment about the morality of it. It's, a, it's more a practicality of it. You can't keep it together when there's too much stuff in your blood, you know. So the, the fourth of the noble truths is the path that supports keeping all of the other things together that helps allow us to live in a way which is skillful. And I'm going to talk about that tonight and link it up with this talk that I've been referring to in terms of Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, uh, lecture on the differences between the, a traditional culture, a modern culture, and a postmodern culture, and how do we bring these elements of the Eightfold Path into fruition in a postmodern context, which is what we're in now. In this way, one abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Here one understands as it actually is. This is suffering. 
one understands as it actually is. This is the origin of suffering. And one understands as it actually is. This is the cessation of suffering. And one understands as it actually is. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In this way, one abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally, or one abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects externally, or one abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects both internally and externally. Or else one abides contemplating in mind objects there are arising factors, or one abides contemplating in mind objects there are vanishing factors, or one abides contemplating in mind objects that both there are arising and vanishing factors. Or else that there is just mind objects is simply established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that is how one abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And then the, the last bit, it talks about, you know, how if one practices this, this practice, you know, what the, the consequences would be. And so it, it says that if, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, you know, one of two fruits could be expected, either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. So this is the fourth stage of enlightenment or the third stage of enlightenment. Then it goes on to say, let alone seven years. If anyone should practice these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, or five years, for four years, for three years, for two years, for one year, then one of these two fruits would arise, let alone one year. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months or six months, for five months, for four months, for three months, for two months, for one month, for half a month, the one of these two fruits would arrive let alone half a month, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of these two fruits should be expected, either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. And so it was with reference to this that it was said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way for the realization of Nibbana, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. That is what the Blessed One said, and the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So are there any questions? I think probably because with the people practicing in that time, they were innate. So, you know, when I heard Deepama describing um, compassion or metta, 
as mindfulness, I thought, hmm, you know, when Deepa Ma, as a, as a teacher that I knew in Calcutta, who was highly, highly, highly attained, both in terms of her powers as well as in terms of her insight, and she said that metta and mindfulness were the same. They were the same thing. And so it, it's possible that that's why. And I think because of the way our cultures have developed, it's not innate for many of us. It's actually something that we have to cultivate. And so because of that, we, we bring it as an additional practice. That would be my best guess, you know. But certainly, you know, metta is absolutely fundamental. And if there isn't metta present, it's really difficult to do anything in practice. Because if we're just doing practice from the same old place of judgment and harshness and and forcing things, then, you know, where does that go, you know? So metta has to be uh, brought in from the onset. And, um, you know, I think different different people have that. I have no number of people who have that understanding. Hmm. Any other questions? So this is the scriptural references about the practices that we've been doing over these days. You know, and it's like, you know, it's not that I just made it all up. <laughs> you know, there's there this stuff is actually um, very clearly described and articulated. You know, the Buddha was very gifted in his clear articulation of practices and paths. And uh, it's one of the legacies that we have, is, is we have access to the teachings that he gave, and we can make use of them. So... Um, I hope you found the the sutta readings useful and the commentary on them. And uh, I'm just glad to have the opportunity to share.